You know, as we come to this text, Matthew chapter 18, it, it marks a new section in Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew's or Matthew's collection of uh, a fourth discourse of Jesus. Jesus is sort of fourth sermon that fits within Matthew's gospel. And it, it comes about as this crazy occasion when the disciples come to Jesus in verse one and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a question which kind of staggers belief. You sort of think, oh, my goodness, why did they ask this? How could they think that that is an important thing, given all that Christ has already said about his coming and the fact that he's going to die and all of that suffering that's predicted and that he's the great one? And yet here they are asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But before we get too judgmental, when we think about the disciples and we think, oh, man, they just blown it again. I can't believe they would do that. I want to ask you a a question. I don't know if you do this, but I definitely do this. When you think about your future and you kind of imagine or, or fantasize or kind of dream about your ideal living situation or house situation or relationship situation, when you when you think about the future and you imagine you know, where it's going to go and fantasize how it's going to be. My question for you is this, who's the star player in your dreams and in your fantasies? When you think about the future and you think, oh, how is it all going to work out? More often than not, at least it is for me, I'm the star player. When I think about the future and, and, you know, prosperity or position or success or power, I'm the one in the center of that show. I'm the one receiving the greater things, having the better things. I don't spend my time daydreaming or thinking about how everyone else could get ahead or how everyone else could have everything good or how everyone else could you know, succeed. I think about me because I'm the center of my own little show. And so when we come to the disciples asking this question, the reality is, is most likely, unless you're really humble and I hope you are and you're better than me, we're just the same. And we bear the same problem that they bear, the problem of self-absorption, the problem of self. Uh, John Newton uh, calls the self the greatest evil that we ought to try and fight against because the self is the thing that seems to destroy ourselves and our communities. So chapter 18 comes at a crucial moment. It comes at a crucial moment, and that theme of chapter 18 is crucial because it's all about community. It's all about this new community that Jesus is establishing. We saw in chapter 16 that Jesus really is the Messiah. His identity is revealed. He's the Son of God, and he's come to save the world. We've learned that uh, he's going to do that in a way that's unexpected through death and resurrection. But we've also learned that his plan is is to build his people, to build his church, to gather his people to himself, that his salvation plan isn't just like sending out a vaccine that sort of individuals are cleansed and helped or et cetera, et cetera. His plan is to gather these cleansed people into a new community, into a new society, into a kingdom, if you will, with himself as the king and then all his people around him. We call it the church. Uh, The church universal is all those people, and then our little church is a local expression of that. And we learn that the disciples, they have a pivotal role in this new community. Jesus said to Peter that you're the rock upon which the church will be built, 
The disciples are told that they'll have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And we saw last week that um, they are called sons of the king. And therefore, in some way, they're free. And they're actually above all the rulers and authorities and, and even the Jewish leaders in their area. They don't actually have to obey them anymore. They're free from things like the temple tax. And so that is why we have this whole sermon now on community, because we have this tension. Jesus is gathering his people. The disciples have this position of authority. But how is this community meant to be structured? How is it meant to be ordered? What's it meant to look like? We can see from the disciples that when they think about this community, their instinct is self. They are thinking about their position, what they can get, their success, their status, their identity, rather than thinking about those of others. And we are just like them. I am just like them. Because our natural human instinct, our natural preoccupation with self is the very thing that destroys the possibility of a great and healthy community. The type of community that Jesus wants to build, the greatest threat to that is me. And the greatest threat to that is you. Because just like the disciples, we want to place ourselves in the center. We see this all over the world, how difficult it is to have a functioning and healthy community. Look at our nation right now, our states. (laughs) You know, there's walls barricading between us. We have division politically, divisions racially, divisions economically. You have divisions most likely in your staff teams at work, divisions perhaps if you play in sporting teams, and painfully divisions even in our own families. How many of us come from broken homes and broken families? How many of us have divorce weaved into the tapestry of our storyline? How many of us have family members that we never even speak to because of past divisions and hurt? And then the division continues even into the church of Jesus Christ, the community that he died for. How many of you have experienced the heartache and heartbreak of a divided church? Or if not divided, dysfunctional and unhealthy? And the church of Jesus Christ that he died to save, the the church that he promised to build, ought it not to be the one place where love and humility and other person-centeredness, love for neighbour dominates, and yet so sadly it often isn't. Now, I would say by God's grace so far in our short history, in our two years together as a church, we have experienced a wonderful and healthy community. Not perfect by any means, but it has, I believe, been healthy and unified. But church, I don't want us to rest on our laurels or to assume God's grace going forward. I don't want us to assume that going forward as we grow and things change, that we will always experience such unity, serving and fellowship unless we actively pursue it and actively protect it. And particularly now, this very moment we find ourselves in as a church, we face the challenge to our community and our unity and our fellowship because we face the challenge of regathering. We face the challenge of differences of opinion about how and the way things should look and where we should do things and when we should do things. We We face the challenges of health and friendship 
welcoming new people from Alpha, welcoming new people into our church, starting new ministries and new life groups. And that is why Matthew 18 is so crucial for us today. It's so It comes at such a pivotal point for us. I'm so glad that the Lord has led us to Matthew 18 because it will help us. It's a sermon from the Savior about how to be a truly great community. So if we're just like the disciples and we are full of self and we put ourselves in the center and self seems to destroy community and divide families and divide churches and break down all that Jesus sought to build, what's the solution? How do we avoid the pitfalls that surround all human communities? Well, in Matthew 18, and we're going to look at it over in two sermons, but Jesus provides the answer. Jesus provides the solution. And what we're going to see is this, that truly great people are truly concerned for all. That truly great people are truly concerned for all. It's going to be an interesting and beautiful truth. And so I just want to jump in now with all that introduction out of the way and look at two points, two points to sort of answer this question that the disciples had. Point number one, true greatness defined. And point number two, true greatness applied. So true greatness defined and true greatness applied. Point number one, true greatness defined. Let's read that verse again, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It really is a facepalm moment as you read it. Uh, It's one of those moments in hindsight, we can see the ridiculousness of it. But in the heat of the moment, we probably all would have fallen prey to this temptation. As they look ahead to the kingdom of Jesus, and, and they must have just forgotten or just put to one side all that Jesus said about suffering and death and destruction and denying oneself. And they're just thinking kingdom. Yeah, kingdom. Awesome. Messiah's kingdom. And okay, now it's about to happen. So who's going to be at the head of the kingdom? They start to get really excited about who's going to be the top dog, who's going to get the credit, you know, uh, the status, the, the position, the credit cards, the success and all that goes with it. They start to imagine themselves potentially with Jesus, obviously, on the throne. But who's going to be next? Who's going to be the princes of the kingdom of heaven? They're excited about that. That's what's filling their mind. They're daydreaming and fantasizing. And clearly they've lost track of the reality of the kingdom, the paradox of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. We've learned that this kingdom is what? Upside down. Uh, That the cross comes before the crown, that suffering comes before glory, and that for anyone who wants to follow Jesus, they have to follow Jesus. And what's going to happen to Jesus? He'll be delivered. He'll be put to death. And then he'll be raised to new life. Jesus said in chapter 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, they were so concerned with their self. Who is the greatest? Is it me, myself? Will I be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But fundamental to the calling of following Jesus is denying yourself. And so in verse 2 to 4, Jesus attacks this self-centeredness and teaches the key to true greatness. And in turn, we're going to see the key to truly great community. 
verse 2, Jesus does like an object lesson. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. So you get a picture of the scenario. The disciples are sort of like beating their chest, thinking like, who's going to be the boss? Who's going to be the king? And Jesus calls a little kid and puts the child right in the middle. And imagine there's like a it's footy team. There's a huddle. The 12 are like, you know, putting their chest out. Peter and James and John and you know, Bartholomew. And they're all kind of fighting for the spot. And Jesus gets his rag little child, puts him in the middle. And then he says this in verse 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gives a warning and a promise. The warning in verse 3 is, disciples, your view of greatness, your preoccupation with self is incompatible with my kingdom. Not only will you not be great in my kingdom, if you continue in this type of thinking, you won't even be in my kingdom. So far off the mark of the nature of my kingdom you are that unless you turn and become like a child, you won't even be in it, let alone great within it. It's a dire warning. It ought to be something that we should just pause right now and just consider in our own soul. Is this me? Is this me? Am I so full of myself that I'm in danger of not entering the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's let's go on and, and kind of see what Jesus has to say. Because what we're going to see is that no matter our worldly status, we all must stoop to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you do, Jesus says, you will be the greatest. So it's a two for one deal. If you can humble yourself like a child, you'll be not only able to enter the kingdom of heaven, but if you remain humble like a child, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. And why is that? Because you will be like your savior, Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 9, Paul says this. Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the the saviour we're meant to be modelling and being like. So what does it mean to become like a child then? Well, in our time, children have somehow wormed their way to the top of the pile. So it it doesn't make as much intuitive sense to us. But in the ancient world, it wasn't so. In our time, we give in to children. We center our lives around them. They're like the king of the home. If they throw a tantrum, it's like, oh, no, whatever you want. Okay, TV, phone, here, money, credit card, whatever you want, take it. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Um, Commentator RT France says this. This is what it means to humble yourself like a child. The instruction to become like children is not about adopting some supposed ethical characteristic of children in general, innocence, humility, receptiveness, trustfulness, or the like, but about accepting for oneself a position in the social scale which is like that of children. That is, as the lowliest in the hierarchy of authority and decision-making, those subject to 
and dependent on adults. So to become like a child in the kingdom of heaven is not to become like innocent and cute and playful or something like that. It's to remove or it's to treat yourself as if you have no status, no power, no responsibility, no glory, no ability. You're just a kid. No one asks you. No one is going to look to you. There's no, I deserve this. There's no expectation. Children get what they're given and they don't get a say. In the ancient world, they don't, even children, rich children, weren't heirs of their property until they were much, much, much older. And so they were under the authority of others, even under the authority of slaves. And so to turn and become like a child or to humble yourself like a child is to fundamentally view yourself as if you have no status, as if you have no worth, as if you have no respectability in the sight of the world. It's the exact opposite of what the disciples were desiring when they asked for greatness. They were full of self, but Jesus is calling for self-denial. And so... Jesus defines for us true greatness. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, empties himself like Jesus did, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So therefore, disciples, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, true greatness, true greatness is childlike humility. True greatness or greatness defined is childlike humility, a lack of concern for one's own status, own privilege, own position, and own power. True greatness is self-denial. And so if we are to enter the kingdom and if we are to be great in the kingdom, we must commit the greatest sin of our day and age to deny ourselves, become selfless, statusless, and humble. The Apostle Paul put it like this earlier in that same chapter, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, count others more significant than yourselves. That means you could be the the king or the queen, a CEO. You could be actually in society full of status, but in the kingdom of God, you count yourself as someone who has no status. It's how you reckon yourself. It's your self-conception. When you see yourself, you count yourself as nothing and you count others as more significant, more worthy, more esteemed, more respected. So you don't have to lose your status to become a Christian your worldly status, but you adopt a selfless status within the kingdom. And that is true greatness. Now, friends, if you hear this and you think, oh, my goodness, I am, this is me. I'm struggling with pride. I struggle with self-absorption and self-obsession. You're not on your own. I struggle with it too. It's incredibly difficult. It is just this You know, other writers like John Newton, they talk about it like this root that will just spring up even at old age. It's still something that we always have to fight. And so what do we do if we find ourselves with the disciples seeking our own greatness, being the hero of our own stories? Well, I think the first step is to confess it and to humble yourself before God. 
Confess your struggles with self. Confess your vain glory. Confess your lust for position and status. Empty yourself before him as a sinner and ask him to fill you up with his spirit and a concern for the significance of others. That's, that's the first step. So we see in point number one, true greatness is defined. And true greatness is not status and position. It's actually emptying yourself of that and considering others more significant than yourself. True greatness is childlike humility. But Jesus isn't just giving us an individualist lesson on humility. He's actually wanting us to live it out in community. And that leads us to point number two, true greatness applied. True greatness applied. See, Christianity is not an individualistic religion. It's corporate. It's communal. It's family at its core. And therefore, according to Jesus, true greatness is never going to be achieved individually, but it's lived out corporately. True greatness is never achieved just personally or individually, but is lived out corporately. And so for Jesus, the immediate application of true greatness and humility is community. How we live in our church community and treat one another is the mark and measure of our humility and indeed of our true greatness. The proof of our humility is how we treat others in our church community. And so to sum up verses 1 through 14 and the rest of this little passage here, you see this. Jesus is saying truly great people are truly concerned for all. So he defines true greatness in verses 1 to 4, and then he applies it in verses 5 through 14 in three points of application that I want us to focus on. Truly great people are truly concerned for all in three ways. Truly great people are concerned, firstly, for everyone's inclusion. Truly great people are concerned for everyone's inclusion. Verse 5. Let's have a look. Chapter 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, we need to note that from verse 5 onwards, Jesus will continue to speak of children or little ones. But from here on, his focus is not the little child in front of him. It's a generic term for all Christians. It's a term for anyone who has taken on this childlike posture of humility and following Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying to these disciples who want to be greatest in the kingdom, he's saying to them, no, 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 verse 5, receive anyone into my kingdom and you are receiving me. The mark of your greatness is whether or not you're willing to receive anyone who names my name. The mark of your greatness is not where you are, how high you are, but how low you're willing to welcome people into our community. You see, the disciples are at a crossroads moment. They are the, the 12, so to speak. But soon when Jesus dies and rises again, they're going to be the leaders of the church. And they're going to have to have an outward facing circle to welcome in all the hundreds and thousands of people that Jesus is going to save. And if they're all concerned about their position and their status and who's in and who's out, they're going to ruin God's community. They're going to ruin the church. And so Jesus is saying, truly great people welcome and include anyone who is a disciple of Christ. 
He wants these disciples to not just be a crowd, but a community, not just a collection of followers, but a united family. And see the dignity that Jesus gives to each and every one of us. No matter how great or small you are, if you are a humble follower of Jesus, Jesus himself identifies himself with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, you welcome me if you are welcomed. And that's a beautiful thought. It doesn't matter your position in society. Jesus would say he's with me. And so we ought to welcome anyone. Now, this is a test for us as a church. It's a test. Whoever walks into our doors, and indeed, particularly anyone who becomes a member of our church, we ought to treat them with this same level of welcome. The welcome that we would give Christ Jesus, we ought to give anyone who is a member of our community. Whether or not we are similar in social status, in the things that we like aesthetically, uh, if we share the same cultural or, um, you know, family backgrounds, the test of our humility is the ability that we have to welcome anyone into our community. The ability we have to be a truly inclusive community rather than divided into cliques and niches of, you know, different people that all just clump together because we like each other in this particular way. But the truly humble community is welcome to all and everyone feels welcome in it. So a question for application. How are you going with welcoming new people? How is your heart going with being an outward facing circle, so to speak, rather than thinking, I've got my little crew, I've got my little bunch of friends and I'm sweet. Jesus is pressing us to saying, if you want to be truly great, always be on the lookout for who you can welcome in, who you can receive into your family and your friendship group. Do you have an open care and concern for all within our church? Or do you have a feeling maybe there's types of people that are beneath you? Maybe people aren't cool enough or interesting enough, intellectual enough. Was there anyone too loud like me or anyone too quiet, too annoying, too absent, too passionate that you no longer pursue them or include them? Is anyone not worth your time? Well, Jesus saying that truly great people are concerned for everyone's inclusion in the kingdom community. Secondly, truly great people are concerned for everyone's righteousness in the kingdom community. Truly great people are concerned for everyone's righteousness in the kingdom community. Let me read verses six through nine. Now, we've seen a similar passage like this before, and it was in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus was talking about lust and cutting off arms and legs to prevent our own personal sin. But now Jesus makes this same teaching but applies it corporately. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be excuse me, drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom that temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I think what Jesus is saying here is be more concerned with your effect on the community than your position within it. Be more concerned with your effect on the community than your position within it. Because the church of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the community of Jesus is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to stumbling blocks. That's what that word temptation and sin interchangeably means. It's it's vulnerable to tripping and, and, and falling over. It's vulnerable to predators coming in and leading people astray. And it's vulnerable, it's vulnerable to our sins. And so if you're truly humble and you're truly great, you're thinking, how are my actions affecting others? Is there anything I'm doing which might be leading other people astray? The truly humble person is thinking, is there anything I'm doing which might be, you know, leading someone else into sin or not helping them in their Christian life? It's sort of like what we talked about last week with surrendering our rights for the sake of others. And Jesus says in verse 6, it's better to die swiftly than to cause sin in someone's life. That's what a millstone is like a couple of tons, right? So if you get thrown off a cliff with a millstone around your neck, boom, you're, you know, if you don't die on impact, you die from drowning very, very quickly. It's better to die like that. It's extreme language than it is to cause someone else to sin. That's how concerned we should be for the holiness and righteousness of our church. Verse 8 and 9 say, it's better to take drastic action upon ourselves than to cause someone to sin. It's better to cut off legs and arms and feet and eyes than it would be to cause one of God's precious little children to sin. Therefore, we need to be on high alert if we're really concerned about other people, how our actions affect those around us. Some examples. We need to be concerned about how we talk about others. Be always cautious and careful about the sins of gossip and slander. We need to be careful about how things like prejudice can work its way out. Obviously, there's the more obvious sins like our worldliness, how that can lead people to sin, drunkenness, sexual temptation, how you might lead someone into some form of sin in that respect. And then more subtle things, books we like, podcasts or preachers we recommend. But even more subtly than that, um, one commentator, R.T. France, made a great point about another way we can really cause people to stumble and trip in the Christian war. He says this, disciples are vulnerable and stumbling blocks are a real danger. And one can be tripped up as much by a disparaging attitude, a lack of concern and partial care, or a refusal to forgive as by a temptation to sin. I think it's a really interesting point is that that verse five, welcoming one another, when we don't do that well and people feel isolated and alienated and not included, that causes them to stumble and trip. It causes them to doubt God's love. It causes them to doubt their place in the community. It causes them to have reluctance to want to join in. And so one of the ways that we ought to be careful for others' righteousness is just how we include others and make everyone feel welcome because we can inadvertently call someone to trip and fall over and start doubting their faith just by the very simple act of not welcoming them in warmly. So therefore, pursue righteousness, 
If you are truly concerned about others, pursue holiness and pursue their holiness. Be concerned about how other people are living so that we can be a righteous community. Jesus earlier has already defined true greatness. In Matthew 5.19, he says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Truly great people are concerned for everyone's righteousness. That's the second point of application he gives to this new kingdom community. Finally, in verse 10 to 14, application point three, Jesus gives, truly great people are concerned for everyone's progress. Truly great people are concerned for everyone's progress. Let me read verse 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, remember, that is one of these Christians, not children. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. What Jesus is saying here is be truly concerned for everyone in the community's progress and making it to the end. He makes this point in verse 10 that do not despise one of these little ones, like do not treat with contempt. Uh, Perhaps given the context of the rest of verses 12 to 14, he means Don't look down on people who are weak in their faith or stumbling or tripping or or veering off that aren't as committed or aren't as passionate or don't love the Lord as much as you. Don't look down on those people. Why? Well, because, A, the angels, their angels who are in heaven, they see my face, Jesus said, or God, they see God's face. They're so important that they have angels kind of speaking to God about them. And then even more importantly, in verse 12 to 14, he tells this parable And this parable is different to the one in Luke 15, which is about lost souls. This one is about little children or disciples that are veering off. And we see the heart of the father, that when God sees people go astray, he doesn't think, oh, well, stuff you. You had a chance. You know, we have church. We have life group. If you you don't make it, too bad for you. No, God's heart is he leaves the 99 and he passionately pursues the one going astray and he carries it on his back and brings it home and rejoices. It's not the will of the Father that any of these little ones should perish and therefore, if we have true humility and true greatness, we'll be concerned for the progress of everyone in our church community. And even those who join for a short time and then leave, if we still have any chance of pursuing them or helping them find a new church community, this is a call upon all of us, not just me as a pastor, but upon you and each one of us to passionately pursue each other's progress, to make sure that no one stumbles, trips, and falls on their way to the celestial city. Grant Osborne commentator says, God's people must emulate God's concern by caring for 
and watching out for each other. This is a chance for us to be like God. He loves those he saves and he wants them to make it all the way home. And so we ought to have the exact same concern. So friends, beware a cold-hearted disinterest toward those within our church community. Beware a cold-hearted disinterest toward those who wander, those who are veering, those who are peripheral, those on the margins, those not growing, those not attending, those not participating, those who have left but not reconnected. This is all of our duty. It's not just your life group leaders or me as the pastor or Richie as the intern or the core team. Jesus doesn't give a hierarchy here. He just says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. And he's talking to everyone. And so it's all of our responsibility as this humble community to care for people to the end. This is all of our duty because we get to mimic our father and our saviour. I want to also make note of one last caveat. Yes, there's lots of responsibility on us for what we ought to do and our responsibility for as a, if we're going to be a healthy church community, we need to be concerned for everyone's welcome. We need to be concerned for everyone's righteousness. We need to be concerned for everyone's progress. Um, and there's kind of an outward concern. But I want to speak to people who are feeling hurt or feeling unloved or feeling like the community isn't working out for them. And I just want to, just remind you that even if you're hurt or broken by the church community, still you must humble yourself. Because often it's our high regard for ourself that is the enemy to a healthy community. Why do we often feel so hurt, frustrated, lonely, or hard done by? It's often because we have such high esteem for ourselves. We get wounded when others do not share our self-obsession, when they do not orient their life and their priorities around our needs and our desires and our hopes. We get wounded when we're overlooked for a position or a promotion, when we aren't included in a group hangout, when no one seems to follow us up. Well, there may be legitimate reasons and concerns and, and things that need to be addressed. But perhaps at the heart of your hurts is a hurt self, an ego that is bruised and wounded. When we feel good, our culture calls it self-esteem. And when we feel bad, it's self-pity. But at the heart of both, it is self, a fixation on ourselves. And that fixation on ourselves is the enemy and the threat to a thriving and healthy church community. Whether you're actively not doing those things or you're feeling hurt by those people not doing it to you, both sides of it, it's the problem with self. When we think of ourselves too highly, we think, I don't need to do those things. And when we think of ourselves too highly, we think, why aren't those people doing it to me? And so Jesus is saying the truly great ones are those who humble themselves, deny themselves, and consider others more significant than themselves. Look to the interests not of themselves but of others. According to Jesus, our self must go. We must become childlike and then we'll be truly great. And the power for this doesn't come from self. <laughs> that would be funny if we now tried to do this in and of ourselves. 
Now, the power comes from emptying ourselves as a vessel before the Lord and asking him to fill us with that same love, that same compassion, that same grace that he demonstrated when he emptied himself in our place and for our sins. So don't try and muster up true greatness. Don't try and become truly great by, you know, trying harder and forcing yourself into this. You know, come to him and say, I can't do this, Lord, but I want to. Help me. Empower me with that same self-sacrificial love that you demonstrated and help me to be so concerned with everyone else that I forget about myself. So putting it all together, true greatness defined. Well, Jesus says true greatness is to have childlike humility, to empty yourself of status and to consider others more significant. And then Jesus applied it and he said, truly great people, well, they're truly concerned for all. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about everyone else and they're thinking, are they included? They're thinking, oh, are they stumbling? Is there anything I'm doing that's causing them to sin? They're concerned for everyone's progress. Are they going to make it to the end? Is our community going forward? Are people being cared for? They're the truly great people. And so as we look around our world and we see the struggle for community, the division and the breakdown in the world, the family and our church, what's the solution? Well, childlike humility. Childlike humility. Loving others, counting others more significant than ourselves and seeking to be like our saviour, not considering ourselves more important, but others as more important. I was, uh, I, I want to end with just a little brief story. I was chatting with one of my best mates on the phone the other day, and he was thinking about marrying um, his, his long-term girlfriend. And I don't really know her very well. So I was like, I can't really tell you like what you should or shouldn't do, but maybe I can ask you some questions. And First of all, I asked him, do you trust her? And he, he said, trust her. And then I was just trying to think about the compatibility. And I had this sermon in mind and I, I just asked him, is she humble? Is she humble? Because my assumption was from this passage, if you're marrying someone who's humble and if you are humble, then any little relationship or community can work. Because at the heart of a healthy community is humility. Because you're not concerned for yourself, you're concerned for others. So, friends, would we be truly concerned for all, like our Saviour? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would protect our community from the evil of self, that we would not be so concerned with our position and our status and how people view us and like us and include us and love us and bless us and serve us, but instead, Lord, may we be caught up with how we can lay ourselves down for others, welcoming and including, not treating with contempt, not making divisions or divide, spending our time, our money and energy and efforts and opening up our circle and our friendship groups to welcome any and all who name your son's name. Lord, may our church be a truly great community because it's founded on humility. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.